0: this is an uprising against smug elites smug elites so they're the villains. And the opposite is America, because America is now one big gay disco. Yes, yes, I have. That's not evil. Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil. One big gay (laughs) disco. Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan mm. Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said I can't do it? One day, gay disco. Adam, I'm trying to mm. do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest Die of it. For the gay disco. Don't, don't use those mm. kinds of slurs. You're on them. For the gay disco. Well, I, There are no slurs here. our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is, that's what they thats what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. You're not supposed to know what I just told you. One big gay disco. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. Is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think that God had a plan for your life.
1: Well, you'd be jerking off every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who
0: don't maybe you would and you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography
2: uh pete Buttigieg yes. seems to be the exhibit a of that process yes yes
0: because you think that the anus is a sex organ don't you pete uh richard spencer hands out spears and he says charge the machine gun nest dr jones sorry <laughs> <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Hello, welcome to another EMJ Live Friday afternoon, beautiful, hot, sunny day in South Bend, Indiana. And we're going to talk today about what is probably the most important uh, movie of the summer of 2023, which is Barbie. No, I'm sorry. It's not Barbie. It's Oppenheimer. Okay. And there's lots to talk about here. It's a very important movie because it deals with uh, an important part of American history. Uh, And uh, I'm reading the book now that the movie was based on. It's 1,200 pages long. So it's Jonesian in its uh, length and breadth. Uh, But I'm not going to talk about that today because I have to clear the ground by talking about something else in relationship to Oppenheimer. And that's an article which just appeared in Crisis. Uh, The editor of Crisis is a man by the name of Eric Salmon. And in this article, he wrote that he found it baffling that any Catholic could watch the sex scenes in that movie without committing sin because it is always a sin to watch such a scene always full stop close quote well that's a pretty strong claim uh i went with a number of colleagues uh walking into a movie about the atomic bomb uh we were not expecting sex scenes they are in the movie uh but uh we didn't know that till we got there uh and at that point uh Uh, one of my colleagues walked out. Uh, But the rest of us stayed. Uh, Now, I said it's a strong claim. Okay, so how did he make that claim? To back up this claim, Salmon cites the catechism of the Catholic Church on pornography. Pornography consists in removing real or simulated sex acts from the intimacy of the partners, in order to display them deliberately to third parties. It offends against chastity because it perverts the conjugal act, the image giving of spouses to each other. It does grave injury to the dignity of its participants, actors, vendors, the public, since each one becomes an object of base pleasure and illicit profit for others. It immerses all who are involved in the illusion of a fantasy world. It is a grave offense. Civil authorities should prevent the production and distribution of pornographic materials. Now, okay, now, wait a minute. Uh, he cut, he cited this, but uh, they're not saying the same thing. They're not saying the same thing that uh, Salmon said. He said it's always a sin to watch such a scene. Always, full stop. They said it's a grave offense. Well, what is it? In order to use the catechism to back up his claim, Salmon would have to show that Oppenheimer is pornography, which he does not do, and I don't think he can do. Instead of proving his point, Salmon engages in veritable sleight of hand, which obscures the main issue, which is that pornography is an occasion of sin. You cannot have this discussion until unless you talk about the uh, the concept of occasion of sin and so far it's missing from both the bishop's statement at which is uh, modest compared to salmon's statement he doesn't mention it either is it possible that this guy doesn't even know what an occasion of sin is of course it's possible what does the catholic encyclopedia have to say uh, we live in an age where everyone is an ignoramus. So it's not surprising that people don't know essential elements of Catholic theology, which are essential to discussing certain issues. One of them is the occasion of sin. This is what the Catholic Encyclopedia says. Occasions of sin are external circumstances, whether things of things or persons, which either because of their special nature or because of the frailty common to humanity or peculiar to some individual, incite or entice one to sin. It is important to remember there is a wide difference between the cause and the occasion of sin. The cause of sin is in the last analysis, the perverse human will and is intrinsic to the human composite. The occasion is something extrinsic and given the freedom of the will cannot properly speaking stand in causal relation to the act or the vicious habit we call sin there can be no doubt that in general the same obligation which binds us to refrain from sin requires us to shun its occasion but they're two different things now theologians discuss distinguish between proximate and remote occasions of sin but they are not of one mind on how to define the term de lugo defines proximate occasion or near occasion as one in which men of like caliber for the most part fall into mortal sin or one in which experience points to the same result from the special weakness of a particular person. So there's an objective and there's a subjective element to the occasion of sin. The remote occasion lacks these elements. So in other words, if it's a remote occasion of sin, most people would not fall into mortal sin if they were exposed to it. All theologians are agreed that there is no obligation to avoid the remote occasions of sin both because this would practically be speaking impossible and because they do not involve serious danger of sin. So we're talking about a movie about the atomic bomb in a world where you can get pornographic images on your cell phone uh, with the press of a button. This is the reality that we're talking about here. Does anyone seriously think that you're going to fall into mortal sin by going to see a movie on the atomic bomb which suddenly intersperses the obligatory R-rated sex scenes? I'm not trying to minimize anything here. I'm just trying to set the stage here. Oftentimes the distinction between proximate and remote occasions of sin is numerical. Now, I'm not, this is something I got from a, a moral theologian. I wish I had his the citation, but I don't have the citation here. I've forgotten it. So getting, uh, getting drunk is a sin. A bar may be an occasion of sin. If your job entails going to a bar and drinking with clients and you get drunk four out of the 10 times you drink with them, you should avoid that bar as a remote occasion of sin this is what some one of the theologians said four out of ten times it's remote if you get drunk nine out of the ten times you go there you should avoid the bar as a proximate or near occasion of sin in other words you have a moral obligation to avoid that and if you deliberately you deliberately go to the bar to get drunk you're committing a sin. In addition to the sin of, of, if you're deliberately putting yourself in harm's way, it would be sinful, which is what I say. Deliberately frequenting a near occasion of sin is itself sinful unless you have a sufficiently serious reason, which may be the case if it's part of your job. Now, that's the subject. I'm dealing with the subjective or the situation of the person who's going to, involved in this occasion of sin. What about the people that create the occasion of sin? Filmmakers should not put people into an occasion of sin for no good reason, which is clearly what director Christopher Nolan did in Oppenheimer, where the sex scenes are gratuitous and could have been avoided. That is exactly what happened in Islamic countries. They basically uh, photoshopped a dress onto the lady who was giving talking to Oppenheimer uh, uh, with her bare breast exposed. They put that on her and same story, nothing nothing changed. It could have, the, Nolan could have done the same thing, but he didn't, he didn't. But the relatively minor nature of the sex scenes in Oppenheimer militates against viewing the film as pornographic in its intention. So this is not pornography okay we know what pornography is you can get it on your cell phone this is a movie which has r-rated hollywood conventions and this is one of the conventions which didn't have to be that way it's it's gratuitous it's not meant it's not essential to telling the story this does not mean that it could not be for some a near occasion of sin which should be avoided it's a judgment call for individual viewers to make, knowing their own weakness in this area. So at this point, we have to be a little bit historical rather than descend into kind of ahistorical tomism and realize that what was the cutting edge at a certain period in time is not the cutting edge now. All you have to do is consider bathing suits, uh, for example. Uh, this was an experience I ran into when I went to Iran for the first time, where the women all wear the chatter. They're completely covered up. I had just come from Chicago with a 10-story high uh, picture of a woman in her underwear, and it didn't faze it didn't me at all. I get to uh, Iran, and the uh, New York Times reporter comes up to me and said, what's your first impression about Iran? I said, desexualization. It was like I, I had decompressed after the, living in a totally sexualized culture for so long that I had become uh, inured to it. This is part of the situation here. So, what was uh, the production code? One of the, uh, we we've all know the story here about Hollywood, how basically the Catholics imposed a production code on Hollywood to keep nudity out of the films, uh, and they did so in in 19 I think it was 1940. There was uh, a movie Howard Hawks produced the film called uh, The Outlaws I believe and it's Jane Russell. Uh, Jane Russell is we- is wearing a dress. She's wearing a low-cut dress and that is reason to uh, debate whether the film should be banned or not. That shows you how far we have come here. There's an element of desensitization that is set in that has to uh be taken into account here along with the so the historical element along with the personal element of you know uh i don't know s- some people can uh get one drink and they can't stop drinking and they're se- subjectively very sensitive to alcohol and other people can drink and it doesn't phase them at all so a bar is objective uh, getting drunk is an objective state but this, the personality of the person is, is subjective and that, that has to be factored into it. But given that fact, it is not a purely subjective issue here. So Father Harden, Father John Harden, SJ, the Jesuit wrote a catechism. He says that pornography is always a near occasion of sin. OK, that's what he said. He's an authority. The question then becomes, is Oppenheimer pornography? Well, no, it's not. The sex scenes in Oppenheimer make it, objectively speaking at this point, a remote occasion of sin, which means that at another time and under other subjective circumstances, it could be a near occasion for, of sin for some. But objectively speaking it's a remote occasion of sin this is the terminology we have to use here in order to come to some type of definitive understanding of what we're talking about and that means it is not as salmon says a sin to watch oppenheimer salmon's claim that it is always a sin to watch such a scene always full stop is forceful but it's not accurate in warning his readers against laxity he should not overstate his case. Once we introduce the proper terminology into this discussion Salmon's claim reveals itself as an overstatement and I'm going to make my subjective claim here uh, and nothing more than an extended exercise in virtue signaling which places unnecessary burdens on the consciences of those who take his magazine seriously. Why do people engage in virtue signaling? The answer is guilt. The answer is guilt. So whenever you see a sign on someone's front lawn, uh saying in this house we believe that science is real and blah 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 it's virtue signaling and there's guilt involved and the guilt becomes clearer when you see a sign that says you know abortion keep abortion legal or something like that there's guilt driving that that's an an instance of virtue signaling politically correct virtue signaling and there's an instance that's an instance of that that's what's driving that so what's driving um mr salmon Well, I had a run-in with him not too long ago. He published an article by Janet Smith accusing me, uh, who accused me of being an anti-Semite. This is not uh, true, as I proved last week in my dealings with the ADL. It's a slanderous statement. So I wrote a response, and he wouldn't run it. He wouldn't run it. This is a sin. uh, I have a right to my good name. To slander me like this is a sin against the Eighth Commandment. Uh, Maybe that's the reason we have such aggressive chest-thumping virtue signaling on an issue where he's completely out of his depth and doesn't even know the proper uh, terminology that you need to discuss it. Anyway, that's my rant. Let's hear what you have to say.
2: All right. Uh, Dr. Jones, did you want to go over that... Uh, one section in the movie about anti-Semitism
0: real quick all right, that wait, this, all right I will go this is we are going to we're going to get into this uh, in depth uh, next week uh, because there's too much here just to cover in one thing I just had to clear the air uh, with this thing but there's a whole dialogue here uh, between uh, is it I think it's General Groves it's not Colonel but anyway uh, between the soldier and Oppenheimer and uh this is so it's uh, they're talking about the manhattan project how long it's going to take uh you're talking this, this is the dial oppenheimer says you're talking about turning theory into a practical weapon system faster than the nazis uh groves who have a 12-month head start oppenheimer says 18 months Groves, how can you possibly know that our fast neutron research took six months and the man they've undoubtedly put in charge would have made that leap instantly. Who do you think they put in charge of the Nazi operation to create the atomic bomb? That's what they're talking about. And Oppenheimer says Werner Heisenberg. He has the most intuitive understanding of atomic structure I've ever seen. You know his work, says Groves. I know him. Just like I know water of these other people, uh, in a uh, in a straight race the Germans win. We've got one hope, Groves said, which is and Oppenheimer says, anti-Semitism. Now, it's not in the book, and what we're going to talk about uh, next week is the the distance, the differences between uh, Nolan's movie, which is very. Uh, establishes at the beginning that the Manhattan Project is a Jewish operation, and uh, Kay Bird's book, which, uh, in a sense, suppresses all of that uh, that Jewish and Jewish uh, identity. I mean, he admits it, but uh, it doesn't have any of the effect that it has in Nolan's movie. And next week we're going to discuss why I think that is taking place and what Nolan is really trying to tell us. But for this week, let's just deal with the. Uh, Eric Salmon and his uh, outrageous claim that anybody who went to that movie committed a sin.
2: All right, next week it is. Um, Okay, for those who don't know, the voice you're hearing is uh, Mike Bajakis. I'm Dr. Jones' Assistant. Uh, This is the call-in section of our program. Uh, For those who don't know, the uh, link is in the description. We use Telegram for the call-ins. In Telegram, I will call on those who raise their hands. And then later in the stream, we're gonna read off questions from Cozy and other platforms. Are No paid super chats required. Uh, quick rules here. Try to keep uh, questions on subject. Try to keep to one question. Be respectful of time. And whatever you do, do not forget to unmute yourself. All right. I'm going to jump over here to Telegram and see who raising their hands. All right. Uh, Ralph TD. Go ahead, Ralph. Don't forget to unmute. Are you there Ralph? Little unmute button, the big one right in the center of your, there it is.
0: Hello. Hi, how's it going? First of all, I just want to say I'm I'm a
1: huge fan of your work, Dr. Jones. Uh, I was just curious um, what your thoughts were. I know a lot of Ashkenazis, like we know that they're not directly related to the Jews of like St. Peter and and St. Jude. Um, Why do you think that so many of them today are still subversive and are not open to christ is it a spiritual thing is it how they're raised because it seems like even some of the secular jews who weren't even really raised jewish are still very much against them
0: yeah and then yes i wrote a book called the jewish revolutionary spirit it's not called jewish revolutionary dna that's the antithesis of what i believe as i tried to explain last week so it's a spirit and it's a spiritual battle And the spiritual battle took place between the jews who accepted jesus christ as the messiah and the jews who wanted to crucify him because he was uh, the wrong messiah that's what that is about and as a spirit it is passed on spiritually intellectually Uh, however you want to describe that, from one generation to another. That is the Jewish identity. They are revolutionaries because they killed the Logos incarnate. And when you reject the Logos, you're rejecting the order of the universe. And that's when you become a revolutionary. So the other thing that I have to say, it's called a spirit. And you don't have to be Jewish to contract the spirit they can they confect all kinds of revolutionary movements and there's never been a revolutionary movement that is made up of so all 100 percent jews it's never happened never going to happen you can have christian movements uh that are manifestations of the jewish revolutionary spirit and puritanism is one of them and uh, the book covers one after another, bouncing back and forth as the spirit moves forward in history from one revolutionary movement to another. So read the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. That's where the answer is. Absolutely. Please come to upstate New York you get the chance, Dr. Jones. Thank you. Okay, if you, if you build it, I will come.
2: Okay, next one. All right, uh, going to A.W. Go
1: ahead, a w. Hello, Dr. Jones. Um, My question. Hi, uh, my question is, in your opinion, how much longer do you think the um, Holocaust narrative will last? I mean, when when do you think there will be a total collapse of this
0: one month from narrative? One month from now. Total collapse. That's when the book, that's when I, the Holocaust narrative as a book comes out. It's already happening across the board. It's, the the, the, the Jews are upset. Uh, the every, people all around are talking about it. Uh, everywhere you go, you know, wherever it is, people come up to me and they, one way or the other, they've had bad experiences with the Jews and uh, they've had it. It's over. And there's not, uh, you know, all the king's horses and all the ADL's men can't put Humpty together again. It's collapsing. So I just had uh, a lady uh, spent 40 years in New York City as a left-wing agitator working with communists or whatever the, you know, this conjuries of left-wing groups. And she's leaving New York City because... The issue is the Jewish question. And she said, if you're not dealing with the Jewish question, you're not dealing with the fundamental issue of our age. People all across the political spectrum, both right and left, are coming to this conclusion. And there's a convergence here. <clears throat> and I think this is the moment. It's, it's going to happen. It's happening right now. And uh, when the book comes out, uh, that will be the coup de grace.
1: Will the governments of the West finally let go of this narrative or will that take a bit longer i
0: I think it's already happening i've already told you about uh my experience in ireland which is a completely conquered province of of the oligarch it was conquered by google and all those people that they let in unknowingly and uh my good friend uh uh gemma uh, called me up and uh, there was a bill, basically the hate crimes bill, of the kind that are proliferating now as an act of desperation in places like Florida, for example. Uh, uh, Ireland was had this hate crimes bill. It was ready to be signed. And uh, she said to me, you know, something's got to happen. There's a crucial thing that's got to happen by tomorrow and i said well uh, somebody a guy that she knew had to do something he was a powerful guy had to do something by tomorrow and i said well i'll say a prayer and god heard my prayer the guy did it and they backed down and that bill got withdrawn that bill uh the hate crimes bill has been withdrawn you know so this is this is we're coming to the crucial moment here the biden administration has just passed the most far reaching uh, government proposal to fight anti-Semitism in American history. This is no exaggeration. Every single office of the government and now has to come up with a comprehensive plan to fight anti-Semitism. And that means the U.S. Department of Agriculture. What's that got to do with anti-Semitism? Soybeans, anti-Semitic, I- I- the Forest Service. Does that mean Smokey the Bear is an anti-stop? This shows you the desk. This is Debbie Lipstadt, the crazy lady who came up with the idea that there was such a thing called Holocaust denial. This 450 Jews now totally control the Biden administration. This is the fruit of their labor. They've completely commandeered the uh, federal government and turned it into uh, basically a a Jewish help agency. And they came up with this document and it's going to fail. I guarantee you it's going to fail. They way overplayed their hand. They're overplaying their hand across the board. We spoke last week about how the ADL of all people had to back down and their attack on me. They're overplaying their hand. This is the moment, this is the moment when the tide is going to turn. People are gonna look back in history and say, it went that far, but it never went any farther. And then suddenly the tide receded and you see all this stuff left on the shore, all this dead stuff. And that, it went or went farther than that. I think this is the moment where we're dealing with that. This is the moment in history where we're, this is going to happen. This might, if you're, that's your question, that's my answer.
1: Okay, thank you, Dr. Jones.
0: You're welcome. All
2: right, um, next we have, uh, where is it? Eric Brandit. Go
0: ahead, Eric. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Great.
1: Kind of piggybacking off of the Hollywood discussion, um, I want to ask you about something that you posted on Telegram recently uh, regarding the Jewish actor cast as Superman. Uh, I've noticed that all mainstream superheroes were created by Jews. Superman, Batman, Captain America. uh, Stan Lee's real name was Stan Lieber. He was Jewish. Uh, And they seem like kind of the silly attempt to create a messiah. And of course, Hollywood's been pumping out endless superhero movies for years now, like this upcoming Jewish Superman movie. Right. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about superheroes as a Jewish art form.
0: Yeah, this is a, there was a, an, an exhibit, I think, in Brooklyn about the origins of Superman. So basically, it was two Jews in America during the 1930s. Uh, now, when you were a Jew in America in the 1930s, like, uh, let's say, uh, Oppenheimer classic example, uh, uh, German Jewish origin, didn't like the Ostjuden at all. They want to assimilate. They want to assimilate. This is the same thing with Robert Moses, the man who wrecked uh, the Bronx with his highways. Uh, he was uh, a German Jew who wanted to assimilate, wanted to become American. And so that's that's where, the, where Superman came from. So Superman is a mild-mannered reporter by, by the name of Clark Kent, until something bad happens, then he reveals his true identity. So there's an element of cryptos here. You know, he goes into a phone booth. I always loved the fact that he would go into a phone booth. and. What's Superman going to do in the age of cell phones? This is a problem for Hollywood that I'm sure they're capable of solving if they ever get their writers back. But anyway, he goes into a phone booth, takes off the clothes, and suddenly he's Superman. It's like the Jew finally came into his own. The Jew can take care of this, and he flies off, capable of leaping tall buildings at a single bound and so on and so forth, up until one thing happens. What's the one thing that he doesn't want to happen? As soon as he's exposed to kryptonite, he gets weak. And he starts to die what's kryptonite well it comes from the planet krypton it means hidden crypto is the greek word for hidden and it's a that planet blew up and his parents superman's parents were like this is like moses this is where they got this idea they put moses in a little uh, basket with pitch and bitumen so it floated and the pharaoh's daughter picked it up and uh, moses was nurtured uh, into being a prince in the new land well that's the jew that's the Jew in America. Uh, uh, so he, his parents put him in a rocket ship and he blasted off. I think his name was Joel or Ka'el, uh, E L meaning Elohim, which is one of the words for God. And he lands here. But whenever anyone reminds him of where he came from in other words, that he came from Krypton he gets weak. Well, that's exactly the, 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 the biggest fear of the assimilated Jew in America. He changed his name from, uh, I don't know, uh, Jacobson to Jackson. They changed their names. His name is Woody Allen instead of Allen uh, uh He's become an American. Woody Allen is kind of of that ge- generation. He's a great American. They put into this idea of assimilation because that was the state of the art of this type of thing uh, at that time, the 1930s. They were trying to assimilate. Well, another example of this is X-Men. And X-Men is now much later version of this. And this is now when they have taken over the culture. And so they're no longer ashamed. And so the script writer for X-Men uh, said basically it's uh, the X-Men are a combination uh, homosexual and Jew. So in other words, what comes out now is the Jew is subversive and And X-Men and that Brian, what is it singer, the guy who directed the first one uh is arrogant and and flamboyant in uh flaunting the fact that Jews are now subversive, and you better get with their program now. It's no longer assimilation. so anyway, this is the I think this is the covers the whole gamut of the the whole uh, Jewish fantasy known as superhero.
1: Good analysis, thank you
0: you're welcome.
2: Okay, next, we're going to go to the Islamic space program. Go ahead, Islamic space program. Don't forget to unmute.
1: Uh, sorry about that. Uh, hi, Dr. Jones. I had a question about uh, in 132 to 136. Um, A.D. the Bar Kokhba or Kokba revolt, right? my question is how many christians came to the defense of israel during the the last Ro- roman jewish war
0: none the, any any jew any jew who accepted jesus christ was expelled they could not they could not be part of the bar Kokhba rebellion they were all expelled and so it was a totally uh uh what it what, what is this is an admission that Uh, Christianity or the Judy whatever being a Jew is not biological it is spiritual it's a spiritual belief Uh, and if you convert to Christianity that, that water doesn't change your DNA but you are now no longer that group so it's it's an admission on the one hand that the identity of the Jew is spiritual on the one hand and that it's negative. It's a reaction to Christianity. The Jew has a negative identity. He has no positive identity. Everything a part of the Jew identity is in some sense a reaction, a rejection of Logos and the Logos of Christianity.
1: It, it seems to me that I, I killed three birds with one stone. Um, Messianic Judaism, uh, the the nationalist pagan concept that uh, Christianity is a Jewish psyop to destroy Rome. And also uh, dual covenant Christian evangelical Zionism. Just by asking that question, I just stumbled on it last week.
0: Yeah. Well, you're, that, you're right. There are, you're right on all, all three accounts. All of those things uh, have have, this, have the same thing in common. So, yeah. Congratulations. You got the trifecta. Give him give him a <laughs> thanks.
1: Name. Take care.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, next, we're going to
2: Andrew Horvall. Go ahead, Andrew.
0: Hear me hello hello can you hear me i can
1: oh hey dr jones hey to elaborate I, I haven't seen the movie oppenheimer but to elaborate on the idea that watching oppenheimer is a sin uh, we know that the revolutionary spirit is steeped in pornographic material um knowing this it seems that there is no surprise that Hollywood would insert sexual scenes in the movie. We read in the book of Psalms, Psalm 103, 101.3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside and shall not cleave to me. So my question is, at what point is our resistance when it comes to these movies with keeping these words of the psalmist in mind? Do you feel that this is just a matter of throwing out the baby with the bathwater in the case of Oppenheimer?
0: I'm sorry. what Would you explain what you mean by throwing the baby out with the bathwater? What, what, which baby and which bathwater?
1: Well, well, meaning that the movie has a greater a uh, message oh, yeah. to convey. Right, right.
0: Yeah. I, I look. I don't think that this, the, these sex scenes uh, were totally uh, gratuitous. They were totally like standard R-rated sex scenes they had no real relevance to the plot whatsoever other the plot is basically oh uh uh Oppenheimer was a sexual was he he was an adulterer he was uh, a sexual uh he was sexually debauched and so, on and so on okay we knew that you didn't have to we you have to show us this it was irrelevant and so it, it, it didn't have any bearing on the plot. You could have done it completely otherwise. My personal opinion is that he wanted uh, basically to conform to the Hollywood standard of the R-rated movie. And it's, that's obligatory mm-hmm. for R-rated movies. But in terms of the plot, no, it had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. And he could have done it any other way. You know. And the other, more importantly, is let's go back to uh, The Pawnbroker, which is a crucial codebreaker film. Uh, the, uh, the guy argued that uh, the bare breasts were essential to that movie, okay? That was a Holocaust movie. That was essential, okay? Because you're using the Holocaust to break down the production code. But even there, the, the, uh, the, the censor, the, the guy, Monsignor Little, who was in charge of the Legion of Decency, said you can shoot the scene from behind. You don't have to do that. Uh, You can shoot it from behind and you'll get Rod Steiger's face in the picture. It's much more dramatic that way. And you're not exposing bare breasts. They didn't want to do it because the whole point of the movie was to use the Holocaust to get nudity on the screen. That was the whole point. That at that time, we're talking about 1965, was the cutting edge of transgression, Hollywood transgression of America's sexual uh, morality. It was transgressive. There is nothing transgressive about the nudity scenes in in uh, Oppenheimer. They're completely irrelevant. And that's why I'm saying that it was way over the mark to, for someone like Salmon to come swaggering in and tell people they committed a sin. This is outrageous. Outrageous on his part uh, to say something like that.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Jones.
0: You're welcome. All
2: right. Uh, next, we are going to go to Thomas.
3: Uh, go ahead, Thomas. Hi, Dr. Jones, can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. Um, I have a question. Uh, I really like the cover of Logos Rising. I think it's a brilliant cover. Thank you. And if if I'm not mistaken, I think I found out recently that, was it your grandson that that, that drew it? Yeah, he did. Yes. So. He, he's studying art or something. I think you said that when I heard he it. He
0: did study, um, he, my... he's, he's graduated. He studied art at the Tyler School at Temple University.
3: Okay, well, my, my question was just, you know, we live in a very um, Talmudic economic system, the sort of economic system that squeezes people, even if, you know, they work really hard to be an accountant, let alone an artist. Um, what advice would you give to parents or young people or people who, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about your grandson, not that I wanna push and find out something, you know, that you're not comfortable sharing, but yeah, how, how given that it's becoming harder to make ends meet, what sort of um, advice maybe did you give him or, or how you know, what, what what's your opinion on, on people doing slightly unorthodox jobs in this very tough economic climate that we're in? Thank for, for, you.
0: First of all, the the, the, the economy, is relentlessly pushing uh for the exploitation of labor and the abolition of the job the idea of a job is it's going to be replaced by the idea of the gig the gig economy and and that means uh they'll fill you with illusions that you're going to be the next steve jobs you're a creative genius and that means we're not going to pay you a decent salary Okay. So that's part, that's part of the problem here. Okay. This narcissism that is pervades our culture. But, uh, if, if, if what I told him is, uh, when, when he applied to, to the place, I, I told him to mention the, the art world, the tradition of art in Philadelphia. And I mentioned, uh, Thomas Eakins, Philadelphia was famous for art. Uh, I mentioned Pietro Anagoni, one of the great artists of the 20th century who was not recognized at his time he held an exhibition in 1947 and no one came no one came to his exhibition uh, because that was the high watermark of abstract expressionism and people like jack the dripper jackson pollock were being promoted by the cia he became the most famous the most famous artist portrait artist of the 20th century. I don't think that's any exaggeration. I'm going out on a limb to make that claim, but I think it's true. Just check out his picture of Queen Elizabeth and you'll understand what I'm talking about. And you'll also understand that after the English aristocracy saw that picture of Queen Elizabeth, they lined up at Pietro Anagoni's door in Florence and the line went all the way around the block and he became, uh, you know, had enough commissions to take care of that for the rest of his life including commissions to do covers for Time Magazine. So what I'm saying is you have to uh, find your roots and you have to have some sense of, of vocation, have some sense of purpose in life that you are part of a continuum. This is what I tried to instill in my grandson that there was a continuum of Catholic art that uh, went through Philadelphia, back to Italy, and places like that. This is when I wrote why I wrote the book. One of the reasons I wrote the book. And if that's God's calling, then you will do. You will fulfill His plan if you do what He wants you to do. No matter how many Jack the Drippers are being promoted out there now, it's all Jewish pornography, uh, uh, blasphemy, that type of thing. But these people cannot thwart God's plan. And the fact that you exist means that you have a purpose, and the whole point of this is to find the purpose, uh, discover that purpose uh, through the life you lead. So don't get discouraged.
3: That was a fantastic answer. God bless you, Dr. Jones. Till next time.
2: You're welcome. Okay, uh, let's go to, let's see. uh, ZG, Uh, go ahead, ZG. And don't forget to hit the unmute button. ZG, you there? Unmute button. Going once, twice. All right, maybe later, ZG. Um, Brian Downey. Go ahead, Brian.
3: Just tap the unmute. Sorry about that. Hey, um, the reason why I was calling is I I do read a lot of Catholic blogs, listen to podcasts, et cetera. And there's always a continuous talk about Freemasonry in the world today and how it's trying to overcome the church and overcome society. But I want to see what the relationship is between this, the Jewish movement, let's say, and Freemasonry. And what is the connection between them and just your thoughts on all this?
0: Yes. Good question. I cover this in detail in both uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit and uh, Barren metal, where it's even more important. The, the uh, Freemasonry is based on some type of Kabbalistic understanding of the significance of the temple. Uh, the, so it's a Judaizing type of sect. It got weaponized. Originally, in the Middle Ages, it was a actually a, a, a guild for actual Masons who traveled around and built churches. They were skilled craftsmen. They wanted to protect the secrets of their craft, and so it was a kind of secret society. You didn't want anybody because then you're out of a job if someone else knows how to do what you're doing. Uh, that got weaponized when the Whigs took over the Masonic Lodge in 1721, and they turned it into basically the CIA of the, um, the uh, British Empire. The, uh, they started setting up lodges in France, uh, uh, Belgium, places like the Spanish Netherlands, and those lodges basically brought about the uh, downfall, brought about the French Revolution. So that's the short story. Freemasonry was was the cutting-edge revolutionary movement of the 18th century, Uh, but it was superseded by, uh, at the moment, of the French Revolution, when revolution per se became part of the vocabulary of Europe, and that haunted Europe for the entire um, 19th century, and found its culmination in the Russian Revolution, of uh, 1917, uh, the direct continuum uh, connecting those two things. But uh, at uh, Philippe, uh, the Duke d'Orléans, the king's cousin, who changed his name to Philippe Egalite, Equality Phil, uh, was going to be guillotined. He wrote a memoir right before he was guillotined, and he said that the Masonic Lodge is the candle. And revolution is the sun. And when the sun comes up, the candle is no longer necessary. So it's, a, it's a, an obsolete revolutionary movement at this point. And if you want my humble opinion, uh, the people who talk about the Freemasons taking over the church are simply afraid to say the word Jew. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay,
2: uh, I think we'll do one more question here via calling and then we're going to jump to chat. So, you guys on Cozy, as well as Rumble, I'm going to start asking Rumble some questions because people are jumping in the chat there. Start writing down your questions and we'll get right to you. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, no one wants anyone left. Let's see. No one's raising their hands. Anyone have any more questions in Telegram? There's one. Okay. That's right. Joey Diaz. Go ahead, Joey. <coughs>
1: Hi, it's Jose. Um how are you Jones uh, Dr Jones? Good. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. Okay, uh, the last question for for the call ins we will, will be uh, here in Portugal we will be starting the World Youth Day next week. And uh, on on an uh, on unrelated note to this topic of Oppenheimer, uh, do you have any thoughts on on uh, this movement of World Youth Day where uh the pope goes visits uh, various countries in, in particular well uh, particularly here in portugal it, there's a lot of issues uh getting about the mainstream regarding the, the how much money it is it was spent on infrastructure do you have any thoughts on the the whole topic in general uh how it came by from uh, by by pope saint pope uh, john paul ii for example do you have any idea i, 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 uh, I think
0: uh, uh, my my feeling i've never been to a world youth day My sense was that they got got out of hand under John Paul II, that uh, in spite of his attempt to control them, they just became a kind of uh, liturgical Woodstock. Uh, The the crowd, the masses, took on a life of its own, and it was not particularly spiritual. Uh, Since that time, uh, we have a new pope, and we have the the Jesuit uh, regime, the Jesuits ruling the church now in the interest of the oligarchs. Uh, which does not, I have to say that. I mean, I'm disappointed, but I have to say it. But at the same time, I have to say that it's still the church, no matter who's in charge, who's uh, running it from Rome. I think that uh, lots of times uh, what you hear from the Pope is what the Jesuits put in his mouth. And sometimes you hear stuff that they that he says all by himself. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Uh, but uh, I'm constantly confronted by people. I just got a, a letter today from a man uh, in Germany. The letter's in German. He's been watching my stuff for years. He realizes he was raised as an atheist, so he's probably from East Germany. Uh, He's not baptized. I assume he's not baptized. Uh, But he now realizes that atheism is a mistake, and he's trying to develop the spiritual life, and he wants to know what to do. He's thinking, should I become a Muslim? He keeps talking about the Muslims. He admires their standing up for what they believe and so on and so forth but it's not part of his culture and i said uh, look there's one thing you have to do you have to be baptized if you want to be saved, you have to be baptized. This is the message of Peter. It's been the constant message of the church to this day. It's obscured now by dual covenant theology, which says the Jews can go to heaven without being baptized. That's wrong. Uh, it's an error that is, is circulating in the air. You have to be baptized. If you're going to be baptized, there's only one place you can do it, uh, and that is the church founded by Jesus Christ, Okay, which is the Catholic Church. And then immediately here, well, they got all these gay flags flying on the church in Germany. And, you know, it's sad. It shouldn't be that way, but it is that way. And that does not change the fundamental nature of the church or the necessity to be baptized in order to be saved. These are fundamental realities that will not get obscured, uh, cannot be obscured by any type of uh, idiot or, or traitor who is in a position of power in the church and that's simply what I have to say both about World Youth Day about everything Portugal Germany wherever these are hard times but the the the, the message from God during hard times is the message of Christ asleep in the boat the boat is the church the church is tossed about on a stormy sea Because the devil has power in this world. And whenever the church is going through this type of crisis, it always seems that Jesus Christ is asleep. And so finally the apostles can't stand it anymore. And they go and wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're all going to die? Well, that's the situation we're all in right now. This storm is tossing this boat around and we all think we're going to die. And he says, where's your faith? And he calms the sea. Well, we have to wait until Jesus Christ wakes up and calms the sea. And then the boat that is, that is the church will sail on calm seas again. That's all in God's hands. And the one thing we don't want to do is jump out of the boat, because that means instant death, or don't climb into the boat because uh, uh, you don't like the way they're sailing it. And they're both wrong. This is what we have to do now.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Jones. Have a good day.
0: You're welcome.
2: All right, thank you, Jose. Okay, uh, time to go to the chats, Rumble and Cozy. All right, uh, where are we at here? Okay, first one here from Catulus on Cozy. Question. Uh, a man goes outside shirtless, or even goes to the beach, uh, f- uh, full of almost naked people, uh, is a is that a near occasion of sin or not?
0: Yes. I, yeah, I think. Look, I, I, I got. We did an article on the Playboy uh, Hugh Hefner Playboy Mansion, and the cover had a picture of a lady in a Playboy outfit. Now this was a Playboy bunny. This outfit was deliberately designed to incite uh, the male passion, and it's. I said, look, it's like a completely modest one-piece bathing suit. So the lady writes to me and says, you should be ashamed of putting that. I said, have you been to the beach lately? So what we're dealing with is basically transgressive fashion. It's transgressive. We're trying to transgress. You got all these young ladies who are now trying to get as close to uh, being transgressive as possible, which means that the the bathing suit is getting smaller and smaller and the flesh that you're seeing is getting greater and greater. Okay, now if you... uh, if this lady walked onto the beach in Michigan City in 1920 she'd be immediately arrested. But it's not 1920 anymore. It's 120 it's 100 years later and uh, the only consolation I can offer you about going to the beach is that an element of desensitization sets in. You know, so the first time you go there in the uh, in the early summer you're shocked. By the time September rolls around you're not shocked anymore. You know, until there's another transgressive act. This is unfortunate. This is why you need to maintain standards. But in a sense, the desensitization is God's way of protecting you from uh, sensual desires. It is what it is. This is what this is. I I think that the going to the beach is exactly what I mentioned at the beginning as a remote occasion of sin. Okay. It is so remote means in some sense, you can't avoid it. I mean, what do you mean? I do you mean I can't go to the beach anymore? No, that's too extreme. That's too extreme. I have no control over the people, the bathing suits at the beach, but I'm not, I feel like going to the beach. I really like to swim and I'm not going to do that. So I would say, uh, given our culture, it's a remote occasion of sin, which means it's, it's not, It's not serious you're not in serious danger of committing a mortal sin by doing that and so therefore you shouldn't burden your conscience with it now i was in berlin in 1975 living with palestinians and they came from a puritanical culture into one of the most decadent cities in the world and they were completely swept away because they did not have that type of desensitization that's part of the problem that's what happened to them they all got swept away by the vices that were readily available in berlin uh, and and vices to which the people the natives of berlin were relatively immune i mean you knew they knew there were whorehouses they knew there were whores in berlin Uh, the germans do succumb to this type of thing unfortunately but when you grow up in an atmosphere like that it's not like coming from from uh, what, the Palestinian territories or something like that, they were Palestinians. So this is the best the best I can say to you. There's no point in burdening your conscience about the sins of other people. Uh, the sins, uh, the, the fact that the authorities have let you down, the fact that the Catholic Church has been crippled by the Jews in its efforts to maintain moral standards, largely because of the fault of the Catholic bishops and so on and so forth. But there's no, there's nothing you can do about it. It's the world we live in, and so therefore, at best, it's a remote occasion of sin. Uh,
2: okay. Uh, next, uh, let's see from Mark Newcomb, uh, question, Doctor Jones, uh, who was your favorite pope?
0: Leo the Thirteenth. And why? because he was a great uh, intellectual, uh, understood uh, the, the the political currents of the 19th century, and did a lot uh, in terms of uh, in, uh, writing, and lived a long time, uh, basically could articulate the issues, articulate the issues, the political and intellectual issues facing the church, and refute them in a compelling way, beginning with his association with Civiltà Catholica all the way up to, uh, issuing encyclicals like Rerum the Varm, which dealt with the worker issue and eternity Patris*, which uh, mandated Thomism as the uh, official philosophy of the Catholic church all
2: right. uh, from rumble, uh, techno skills asks, uh, is ISIS the Israeli secret intelligence service or Islamic state in Syria,
0: Islamic state in Syria. I don't know whether other people have taken over, but it's traditionally that group of uh, guerrilla guerrilla warriors uh, that the United States hired as proxy warriors to overthrow uh, the uh, Assad uh, regime in in Syria.
2: And and what and um, I think he's kind of saying this facetiously. Are were they involved with the Israeli special intelligence or yes, they were. And and how so? If,
0: if the well, if they were wounded, they would be flown to Israeli hospitals to be treated. So there was close collaboration between them and the United States and uh, Israel, and the man who uh, really put them out of commission, it was the Iranians and the Russians collaborating that basically defeated ISIS in Syria, and the main man who was responsible for that was General Soleimani, uh, uh, the man that Trump murdered to his disgrace and eternal shame great a great hero among the iranian people and the man who put a stop to those you remember what those people were doing they were you know they'd line up uh, people and cut their heads off they were terrorists and of the worst sort uh, and uh, they hated the shia even more than they hated christians i remember reading a, an article in stern the german magazine where the the, uh, the reporter from stern shows up in uh, syria and suddenly this guy, ISIS guy with a big red beard, shows, speaks fluent German, okay, he converted to Islam and now he was a terrorist and the first question he asked him is, would you like us to see, uh, would you like to see us decapitate a Christian or a Shia? So this is the type of people they were and thank God that uh, Soleimani, the Iranians and the Russians put an end to these, uh, this group of terrorists.
2: Uh, from Rumble, thomas Triple O Seven, uh, Dr. Jones, do you think RFK Jr. knows that the Jews killed both his father and JFK?
0: Uh, <laughs> there is such a tragic story here. So I can't answer that question. <laughs> I He said at one point, I support Israel's right to exist and I tweeted immediately. Did Israel support your uncle's right to exist? I mean, it's all out there. The, the connection between the Mossad, Ben-Gurion, the Daimona nuclear reactor and the collaboration with the CIA to kill, to kill Kennedy. So look, this is a tragic, uh, the tragedy of the Kennedy family continues now with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. So he makes a, uh, uh, he's speaking uh, off the cuff. After dinner and someone's recording him, which he should that should not have been allowed. That was an injustice to Robert Kennedy In which he's trying to discuss a scientific paper after dinner, which is not really where you discuss scientific papers And he talks about some little cur, uh, you know uh, Little indentation in the DNA that uh, if you're going to inject it something there it will affect Chinese and, Uh, It won't affect the Chinese and the Jews, but it will affect whites and blacks. I don't know how, there's no such thing as white DNA, but I don't know what he's talking about. Anyway, he should have the right to say that. He should have the right to do that. But at this point, the mainstream media, which is Jewish, totally Jewish controlled, uh, springs the trap and they denounce him as an anti-Semite. Okay, that's the beginning of the story. That's not the end of the story. Phase two, Rabbi Shmuley. Boutique shows up and announces he's not, I know Robert Kennedy, he's not an anti-Semite. And at that point, Robert Kennedy is beholden to Shmuley and he does whatever Shmuley wants. This is the oldest trick in the book. It's called good cop, bad cop. Bad cop are the mainstream media. Good cop is Rabbi Shmuley. Oh, it's all a big mistake. He's not an anti-Semite. And then you do exactly what Rabbi Shmuley tells you to do. There's a video, uh, which I, 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 uh, it's horrible to behold, where basically Rab, he's, Sh, Rabbi Shmuley has Robert F. Kennedy Jr. eating out of his hand, taking everything that the Israelis say at face value. It's, it's horrifying, horrifying. And it shows you that Kennedy is just out of his depth as i said about that lady that, that we had a long conversation with that lady the communist agitator from new york who was completely disillusioned with uh, revolutionary left wing politics had a long conversation about robert f kennedy and why we're all sympathetic to him you know we all Uh, wish him well. When he started talking about rolling back the coup d'etat of 1963, we all cheered. But you can't do that unless you know what the story is right now. And the fundamental issue right now is Jewish control of our political system. So at the same time, this is going on. Some Jew, I think it's the president of Israel shows up, and gives a speech in front of congress of course he's going to give a speech in front of congress and this time congress has to give 30 standing ovations broke the record before it was 27 standing ovations when bb netanyahu showed up with ipac sitting there taking notes and if you didn't stand up 27 times then and 30 times now, IPAC is going to destroy your political career. Now, if you can, if Bobby Kennedy doesn't know that, he should go back to talking about vaccines and start cleaning up the Hudson River. He's not fit to run for president.
2: All right, uh, from uh, VW uh, Manu, um, how do, Dr. Jones, how do you rate Oppenheimer and what's nolan's best movie in your opinion
0: i think oppenheimer is his best movie i couldn't watch the other stuff my son my youngest son is a big fan of uh of christopher nolan and i just found these movies so uh, pr- uh so precious and so uh intellectually uh ingrown that uh, i couldn't watch them but this is uh, a serious movie it's a serious movie and I, next week i'm going to talk about the difference between his movie which I think is basically, uh, uh, the Jewish part of it is unmistakable at the beginning of this movie. I read you one part. It's all throughout this movie that the Manhattan Project is Jews from top to bottom. Uh, And uh, I think he's trying to tell us something about the world we live in right now, uh, because uh, we are closer to nuclear war than we've ever been uh, since... The United States set off those bombs that Oppenheimer created in, uh, Japan, in Japan. And I think that's what we're talking about here, you know? Can you trust a Jew to represent you in Congress? No, no. Can you trust a Jew to be uh, enforce the law when he's uh, attorney general? No, can you trust a Jew to represent the interest of the United States of America when he's secretary of state? No. I mean, what more proof do we need than Anthony Blinken or, or Mayorkas or uh, Merrick Garland? This is the lesson that we have to learn. And I think what he's saying is, can you trust a Jew to uh, create the bomb? The atomic bomb. Well, I mean, that's what we'll discuss next week.
2: All right. Uh, so it's uh, five past six, Doc. A couple more? One more
0: question. One
2: more question. All right. From Rumble, let's see. Hegshiku, uh, uh, Dr. Jones, uh, how do your Iranian Muslim interlocutors uh, react to your uh, driving them to the logical conclusion that they need to be baptized to come into understanding of the Logos?
0: This is This is premature. This is premature. I have to, I have to talk about Logos. I, I can't, I can't just r- rush into your life and tell you, you know, you, have you've, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. We have to have a preliminary discussion. And in order to facilitate that discussion, I propose a new paradigm, a new paradigm for Iran, which is the old paradigm and the old paradigm is the Magi three Persian kings, the three kings who came from the east. They got started by studying Logos. They studied the Logos of the universe because that's God's creation. And they realized that there was an order to that. And they were trying to figure out that order. And in the middle of their figuring it out, a new star appears. And they saw that the star was significant and they followed the star. And the star led them from following, trying to understand Logos, it led them to the Logos Incarnate. And at that point, I have to drop out of this discussion because at that point, it's the relationship is between you and the Logos Incarnate. I can't force anybody to make that decision. God won't force you to make that decision. God wants you to make that decision, but he's not going to force anyone. You have to be able to go there yourself. And that's something that I, I can I can lead you. I can say, look, you follow the Logos. We have a duty to follow Logos because we're rational creatures. I'm saying if you do follow the Logos, sincerely, God will lead you to the Logos incarnate. And at that point, you're going to have to make the decision whether you accept them or not. This isn't just uh, Islam. It is true about Iran. And this is a discussion I've been trying to have uh, for Ten years. It didn't occur to me. The first thing I talked about was sexual liberation as a form of control. And that immediately got their attention. And I've been talking about for that. But this is the development of thinking about that. When I said to, to discussions I had with the late uh, Nader Talibzada, it's not just something that is peculiar to muslims everyone is in that same situation and if you read the september issue of uh, culture wars magazine you'll find out that nathaniel hawthorne was in exactly the same situation that i described with the magi so this is a pure the descendant of the puritans a man who never left new england villages until he was 50 years old Suddenly, because he wrote the campaign biography for Franklin Pierce, he's the consul in Liverpool where he makes enough money to take his family to Rome. So God leads this guy to Rome and then he leads him to St. Peter's Basilica, which is not the type of thing you see in Concord. That's not the type of church you see in Concord. And he's overwhelmed with the beauty because beauty is a transcendental. Beauty will take you to the presence of God, but it's not going to get you inside the door. That's different. That's faith. Beauty is reason. Faith transcends reason. And so God not only brings him inside St. Peter's, he takes him to the confessional. Pro uh, lingua anglia. You could have confessed in the English language here because he never spoke a word of Italian, as far as I know. And at that point, he has to make that decision. We all have to make that decision. That's the uh, faith. Is this the Log- Is this guy, the Logos Incarnate? Do you accept what he says? And he couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Now, that is the, the, one of the great mysteries of my life, I've been dealing with Hawthorne for 50 years now. I wrote my dissertation on Hawthorne. It is the fundamental issue of Hawthorne criticism, especially the end of his life, why he never finished those four final novels. It is a fundamental issue. Hawthorne, I learned this time around, uh, had the original plan for the Scarlet Letter was to have Dimmesdale confess to a Catholic priest. This is a man who was obsessed with sacramental confession for his entire adult life. And yet when he came to that confessional in St. Peter's, he couldn't go in, couldn't bring himself to go in. And he comes back to Concord and he's melancholy and nobody knows why. And he just sits in the room. They have a, a tower where he's supposed to write and nothing's coming out. And he dies a gloomy man. Anyway, thank you. All right, okay, thanks guys. This
2: has been another episode of EMJ Live every Friday at five. Uh, if you guys aren't already subscribed to Culture Wars, a magazine, go to culturewars.com. Our July-August edition is gonna be posted here shortly. It's gonna be a good one. All the books can be bought on fidelitypress.org. Pay attention to that website because coming up here soon, we're gonna
0: get the Holocaust narrative up there. What, when was it, Dr. Jones, do you think it's coming in? We're st- we're waiting to hear from the printer. It should. Be- it should soon it's imminent it's at the printer i keep saying this i keep i keep waiting for a definitive date well here we should hear by monday we should get a date by monday
2: here we are so pay attention to that make sure to subscribe to telegram the cozy the brumble the Bit shoot all that stuff and pay attention to our next week's episode where we talk about oppenheimer once again we get down to the nitty-gritty when it comes to the anti-semitism i don't have any announcements dr jones final words
0: god bless america god bless
2: america all right Thanks, guys. Have a good one. See you next time.